And as we go through this series, knowing how to hold on, um, God's Word is a good place to go. <laughs> that's why we're trying to understand the Bible as far as what it has to offer for us. What, what is this book we call the Bible? And through these last Sundays, we've been doing this. And I trust it's been helpful. It's been helpful to me as well, too. Gain some insight and some things. <clears throat> but what I want to do, start off with a familiar portion of Scripture. And uh, it's from John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Something for us to be reminded of. <clears throat> and I trust that is something as well. That if there, there's something new there, you, you'd open up your ears and your hearts to it as well. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let me pray real quick. Lord Jesus, I ask right now that you would just open up our hearts to the message you have for us today. Help me, Lord, to be able to communicate it clearly. And I pray also too, Lord, that we would be ready to respond to your promptings in this message. And Lord, thank you for being here with us. And Lord, we just give you uh, full reign in our, in our lives right now, in our hearts. Speak to us. And, uh, and Lord, I pray that, again, we would respond in obedience. In your name we pray. Amen. So, like I mentioned, we've been going through this series, Understanding the Bible. The portion of Scripture that I just read to you will become clearer as we get along into this, uh, this message today. Uh, but uh, we've talked about in this series, again, how the Bible is unique, how it's accurate, how it's supernatural and transformational. We've also talked about how the Bible has one overriding theme, purpose, and storyline, and that is the coming of Christ. We also talked about, how the, can uh, about the canon of the Bible and why we can be co uh, totally confident that our Bibles contain the books that God in, uh, intended. And in other words, there are no books that are missing, and there aren't any books in there that shouldn't be in there. And then last Sunday, we also, we also talked about the transmission of the text, and talking about the, uh, all that that has to offer. You know, we learned that we have so many Bible manuscripts, in contrast, the average classical Greek writings, and we talked about the time gap between them as well, the, uh, the original that was written and of uh, the first copy, and it's so, so much smaller for the New Testament than it is for the other ancient classical writings. And we also learned that there are many manuscripts that lead to a lot of variance, the differences between the, the various manuscripts. But over 99% of those variants are things like word order and spelling differences. And of, the, of that less than 1% of the variants, not a single one comes even close to touching any of the core doctrines of our faith. So when we are... Uh, when we are confronted about the uh, uh, validity of, of God's Word and really is it true, uh, does it really hold up to scrutiny? Uh, yes, it, it really does. The Bible has been copied so much and so early that we cannot hide the original text at all. And what we have seen in the last couple of Sundays is that we can be extremely confident in our Bible that we have what, what God has spoken and, and, and the books that are in there are the books that, that uh, need to be in there. 
So today we're going to talk about uh, two things. One is translations and the other one is the why, and I'll explain that later, the why. Uh, we will start with a, a brief discussion, though, here on translations and, and then wrap up our time with that uh, about the why. Uh, we'll complete this, this uh, first part of this uh, study on understanding the Bible, which was all about that goal. Remember the goal, uh, the first one, actually, of this series, to take a look at the overwhelming evidence that demonstrates that the Bible is not just another book, um, it, or, or mere ink on paper, but it, that it really is from God. And so we're going to kind of wrap that up here today as well. And next Sunday, we'll begin a, the second part of this uh, series where we'll learn some principles that will help us interpret and understand the Bible a little bit better. So, translations. I'm, I'm pretty sure that none of us are fluent in Hebrew and Greek. Uh, I've talked with you. You haven't spoken to me in those languages. Um, and so, there, therefore, we, we read from English translations. You know, it was uh, not until the late 14th century, about 1382, that we had our first English Bible, John Wycliffe, and uh, translated from the Latin. And uh, Wycliffe felt that the Bible should be in the language of the common man. But the church wasn't happy about that. In fact, years after his death, he was declared to be a heretic, and his body was dug up and burned. Um, Really interesting. So John Wycliffe, and the picture you'll see behind me, puts his mug up there. Interesting-looking guy. But really, he had convictions about God's Word and how it should be distributed and uh, translated. It wasn't until the early 16th century that we had our first English Bible translated from the original Greek and Hebrew by William Tyndale. Tyndale was arrested for having an unauthorized scripture and so he was tied to a stake and strangled to death and then burned. They didn't mess around with people who messed around with, with the Scriptures, apparently. And Wycliffe and Tyndale were the first English translations, and now we have hundreds of them. Why so many translations? Uh, wasn't there just a good one that we could, could remain with and, and not worried about? There's so many translations. Why are there so many of them? Well, first of all, if you think about it, it's all about the money sometimes. And the Bible is a bestseller. It's, it's, it's one that can look, everyone wants to look at and figure out and buy. There's a lot of money to be made in repackaging the Bible. You just go to a bookstore, um, Barnes & Noble. And you walk down the aisle there of the religious area. Uh, sticking kind of with the Christian area. And you see all these Bibles, and they are repackaged in a whole different way. There's devotionals that are within the Bible. There's certain Bibles for certain people. There are you know, millennials, uh, older people, those who are dealing with newborn babies, or whatever it is. They have all these types of different Bibles that are um, basically pointed to those people. And so there's a lot of money involved with that. And people will scoop them up. You'll, you'll attach authors to those Bibles, familiar speakers to those Bibles, other pastors to those Bibles, and uh, so you wind up with all sorts of, of Bibles in that way. And I don't have to worry. They already have a version for, for me, I guess, it's called the King James Version. I'm good. Anyway, so a lot of money is involved with that, and so that's why you have a lot of translations. Um, another reason why we have so many translations is that English changes over time. 
English changes over time. Languages change. Words fall out of use. New words come into being. Words change in their definitions and usage. One, one meaning at one time and another meaning at another time. Grammar, syntax, all these things, even use of letters and conventions for punctuation, they all change over time. And what is clear and precise in one era can be nearly incomprehensible in another, even within the same language. Um, now, we haven't totally gotten there yet within our lifetime, but I could imagine in another hundred years, what are people going to be <laughs> reading and translations in that way? I mean, we've seen our English language change just in our own lifetime. And the following words that you'll see here have changed in meaning. The word tool. The word tool used to be mean something that, that you use to fix things with. Now it means oh, it's totally some kind of weird guy. He's a tool, all right, you know. Uh, bad, the word bad used to mean naughty, not nice, awful. Now it's really crazy good. You know, bad is good, good is bad. It's just very interesting. Dope. Dope used to be, you know, dummy. Now it means really cool or, or whatever else. You know, there's other vernacular you can use in that. Cloud. The cloud. It used to mean something that's in the sky, you know, those fluffy things. Now we talk about the cloud where we store our data and everything that our pictures are in the cloud and stuff like that. Text. Text used to mean written words. Read the text. Now it means what's on your mobile device. Send a text. And uh, it's all that type of stuff. Tablet. Tablet also, too. It used to be those bound papers that we write in. Now it's uh, our mobile devices. Things have changed in that way. And consider also, too, the uh, familiar Bible verse that you see back here behind me. It's in Old English, and it is uh, a familiar verse. I am not going to read that. But no, no, no. But it's an old English, it's old English of West Saxon Gospels of 990 A.D. That is about a thousand years ago or so. This verse is actually what I read, John 3.16. Yes, John 3.16. It's English. It is English. But it is English from over a thousand years ago and is barely intelligible to us. Now, even with such a, a familiar verse of John 3.16. English used letters, then, that we no longer use. A number of the words here are no longer part of our vocabulary. Even familiar words are often spelled so differently that we can't even make them out. This was a fine translation in its day, but uh, we can no longer use it. And when language changes this radically, it's easy to recognize that we no longer understand and that we need a new translation. So language has changed and we need those new translations. Some words in the King James Version mean something totally different. If you think of uh, the word closet, it's not that, uh, it's not really, a, these are scriptural words that are used in King James Version. You know, talking about the prayer closet and such, it's not the literal go into your closet where all your clothes are, but it means a private room or, or an inner room, not necessarily a closed closet. Um, conversation. It's not the way a person uh, speaks to one another, but actually a way a person travels through life. That's what that word means in the King James. Careful. There's another portion of Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount. Be careful for nothing. What is used there? 
be anxious for nothing. You know, and so careful. Don't let anything make you full of care. And so you got to go back and find a Bible dictionary. And when you get involved with some of these translations, carriages. Uh, it's not luggage. I mean, it is luggage. It's not the horse-drawn carriage thing going on. Um, leasing. You think, okay, is that business? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's lying. It's deceit instead of allowing to rent or allowing to, uh, someone to use a, an item for cost. Divers, that means various, mean, doesn't mean not nice, but obscure. Uh, bowels, <laughs> you think intestines, right? No, actually, it's the heart. <laughs> what? Yeah, all these things. And <clears throat> these words mean totally different things now. And so uh, there's also some words in the King James that we, don't, we just don't use and would have no idea what they mean. Like uh, Boreas. It's found in Matthew chapter 26, verse 73. Uh, Bruit. Nahum chapter 3, verse 19. Uh, Emeralds. First uh, Samuel chapter 5. We're going to get in there as far as the Bible study is concerned on Wednesday nights. Um, but it's used in account of that plague which broke out among the Philistines while they had the ark captive. <clears throat> and when they had that there, their bodies broke out in emeralds. Tumors. Tumors. Espied. Uh, in Jeremiah 48, 19, it's to catch sight of, not to explore secretly. Okay, not spying on. Um, Holpen in Psalm 83, verse 8. And Listeth in John 3, verse 8. Purloining. Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, I mean, excuse me, Titus chapter 2, verse 10, and uh, uh, suretorship, uh, tachys, all these things. You're thinking, okay, what is this stuff that he's talking about? You need then a Bible dictionary to help you out with these things, because unless you are uh, traveling down to Ashland all the time and watching a Shakespearean festival, and you get this stuff, but we don't normally read this old uh, English language stuff anymore as much. And so it's difficult. So we need, we need new translations. To the early church, uh, the New Testament sounded just like everyday language. The language changes. But a third reason for a new translation is this. Newly discovered Greek manuscripts. When new manuscripts are discovered, then the Bible is gone. They go back over it and go, oh, well, okay, that's not what that means anymore. We've discovered something new here from these manuscripts. There are a lot of different translations out there. And the question that usually comes across uh, your mind, and I've heard before, is which one is the best? Which is the best translation? Which is the best Bible version that I should be reading? We need to realize, first of all, there is no best, okay? Settle that right now. Now, you might have preferences for one or the other. But there really is no best, if you think about it. Most are good. Some are okay. Um, but there really is no best. It might be best for you, but overall in general. And each translation falls somewhere on the scale between two different translating philosophies. One of them is a word-for-word -word translation. You can probably see this behind me here. Maybe uh, make out some of the lettering there. But uh, word for word, and it's formal. It's a formal literal equivalent is what it's usually called. So at one end of the spectrum behind me is the word for word translation. 
formal equivalent or literal, literal translation. This approach seems to represent the original Greek and Hebrew in a more word-for-word manner. And so it, it, it preserves, as far as possible, the original word order and the grammar and the syntax. Um, many prefer this method because each Greek or Hebrew word is generally represented by the same English word in all, all the occurrences that happen in, in the Bible. But if you realize that, then you're thinking, oh, but they changed things around a bit and words are a little different in the English. And so that's why sometimes it might be a little difficult to read these translations. Some of the literal transla- translations include things like King James Version, the New King James Version, English Standard Version, uh, the New American Standard Bible. The most literal translation, though, is the interlinear, which contains the text in its original language with the English equivalent under the text. It falls right along, and you get to see that. Now, some pros about this. What's, what's good about this? Well, it, it attempts to stay close to what the original Hebrew or Greek says. So you're not strained from that hardly at all, if any. And they try to avoid interpreting what the original writer meant, and they leave that to the reader. So you're getting it right there, straight from the horse's mouth, if you will, and you then interpret yourself what is there instead of reading something that someone else has interpreted from the Hebrew and Greek. Uh, Some drawbacks in this, like I said, kind of hard to understand, kind of hard to read, make a little sense to to the modern reader. The sentence, sentence structure can be a little hard to follow at times, and it often relies on the assumption that the reader will understand this technical language and the ancient sayings. So if you are going to be using these kinds of translations, the word for word, you better have a Bible commentary alongside you, or maybe even a Bible dictionary alongside you, so then you can look up these things and get an idea and get a better meaning. Because if you have God's Word and you don't understand it, it's kind of tough, really, to be inspired by God's Word. So you need to, need to realize, you know, try to understand what you're reading. But again, good translation. It can be very, very, very useful. And then there's another uh, translation that's called a functional meaning, trans, uh, meaning equivalent. It's a thought-for-thought thought type of translation. So that's on the other end of the spectrum, this thought-for-thought thought translation. And this approach is more concerned with putting meaning of the passage in, a, in an everyday spoken language that's familiar to the reader. Um, this type of translation looks to condense the ideas of the original text as accurately as possible in the target language, like English, or whatever that uh, language might be. Some examples of, uh, of these translations, the Phillips um, translation, uh, the modern, uh, modern English, the Living Bible, uh, the Message by Eugene Peterson. A lot of these translations come out, and, and you read through them, and if you're used to a word-for-word type of translation, you read this, and you're going, what am I reading? <laughs> This is not the Bible. You know, you're not used to it. Um, they're taking a thought for thought. They are translating. They're, they're trying to um, make sure that the meaning is brought forth in the, in the Scriptures. Many find this translation more readable, especially for new readers of the Bible. Uh, if you get to the extreme uh, area of this, you get into paraphrases. And those aren't actually... I would recommend those for maybe getting a different viewpoint of Scripture, 
but maybe not so much as your in-depth study. <laughs> that might not happen very well if you use uh, those paraphrase versions. So the pros on this is that it's often easy to read, easy to understand, communicates what the passage means in an, in an easy style, and it avoids that technical language and awkward type of sentence structure. Um, the drawbacks, well, you know, the translator decides what the passage means instead of you. Uh, sometimes the sentences are very different from what was originally said, or what you find in other translations. You put up uh, the message uh, with the King James Version of John chapter 3, verse 16, and you see a, a big difference going on there. So like I said, uh, uh, extremes there on both uh, uh, sides of the spectrum. And then in between all that, as you see in the red there on that uh, timeline or that line there, is the dynamic equivalent or the balanced equivalent. That's where they use words and thoughts translation at the same time. They try to do a balance of that. And uh, these translations, uh, they, they, they strike that balance. They try to strike that balance between those two translation approaches. They're sometimes more literal. Sometimes they're more con conversational, depending on the subject and the text. Uh, some examples that you see up there, uh, New International Version, NIV, Holman Christian Standard Bible, HCSB, and, and the NAB, the New American Bible. There's a lot, of, a lot of those versions that try to use both word for word and thought for thought and a balance with that. And some pros about that is that, you know, you use both, use of, of both translations helps get a good sense of the scriptures. You're not just being told what they mean um, only, and you're not just given the words and you got to figure it out on yourself. Uh, it, it, they come together and help you with that. Uh, some cons on this, so some drawbacks on this, you know, it, it's, it's not enough word for word or thought for thought as far as um, some people want more word for word. And if you look at some of this stuff, you're going, that's just not hitting me here. I, I, want, I want a little more depth in this. Uh, for those who like word for word or maybe more thought for thought, then these versions might not touch for you. Now, there are no purely formal or purely functional equivalent translations. Most are a mix of the two, but with an emphasis in one direction or another. You'll, you'll, you'll see that happening. And for the most part, the Bible translations available to us today don't differ as much in quality as they differ in translation philosophy. And that's where you get the different types of translations. Translators choose an equivalent based upon how they determine the best way to translate Scripture. Let me give you an example about this. Imagine that you're trying to translate the following sentence behind me into a different language. Bob and Jane went to the house and began to argue. You're driving me crazy, Jane said. Stop beating a dead horse. Now, the first sentence that you see there, pretty straightforward, right? It's a simple description of activities that can be understood. And when translated word for word, it could be useful into most languages. Most translators will translate this sentence in the same way, a word for word thing going on. But things get a little trickier when you look at that second sentence going on. You're driving me crazy, Jane said. If you translate it word for word, <laughs> you're being very faithful to the original text in one sense, definitely. But you also risk changing its meaning for the readers <laughs> who don't know that in English driving somebody crazy means that you're aggravating them uh, and you're not actually driving them someplace or inducing insanity in them. And maybe translating it, uh, you're annoying me, it might, be, it might be accurate, 
but it kind of loses its punch then as far as you know, driving me crazy. You're annoying me. Um, and it's always possible that translating it this way, word for word, has inadvertently stripped out an important distinction. Because, uh, you know, what if a, a few sentences later, Bob cracks a joke that relies on Jane having said the specific phrase, you're driving me crazy. Would it make sense? It, it just, so there's a lot of things to keep in mind here. And it gets even trickier with the final sentence. <laughs> Stop beating that dead horse. Um, it, of course, we understand that it means pointlessly overstating a subtle point, but will your non-English reader understand this? Maybe they'll figure out what that uh, phrase means by context, or maybe they'll be completely stumped wondering why a deceased horse has suddenly entered the story. <laughs> what is going on? Maybe your reader's language uses a completely different, unique style that conveys the exact same concept. Is it more faithful uh, a translation of the text to translate it literally or to adapt it to the reader's language and culture? Thought for thought. That's where these Bible translators have that, uh, that difficulty and that job. You imagine that now the text you're uh, translating isn't just this silly paragraph behind me, but is instead an intricate poem composed thousands of years ago in a culture that is long gone. Now add to that the understanding that you're translating God's holy word and that a poorly translated word or phrase can make a big impact on a reader's understanding of God and of the Bible. Probably can see why Bible translation involves constant judgment calls and tough choices. It's not a job I would love to have at all. It's natural, it's natural that different translators are going to make different choices, even if they share the goal of translating the Bible accurately. And that's why all translations fall somewhere in between the formal and the functional equivalent, between the literal and the meaning. So if you are going to choose a translation, what kind can I choose? How can I choose it? So let me share some things to consider as far as uh, what kind of translation you might, that might be best for you. Uh, realize, first of all, that there is no best translation. Mention that. There is no best translation. Uh, something to consider as you go through this. And, and you might find one that fits you better, and that's fine. Pick, another consideration is to pick the one that leans towards the philosophy you prefer. Is it more word for word that you prefer, or is it more thought for thought? Do you like the in-between better? And go for that. Whatever helps you understand God's word best. Many find it helpful to consult more than one translation, so maybe you want to do that. And there are those Bibles that are called parallel Bibles, and they have the sections there that hold the different uh, uh, versions right next to each other, translations. So some are more literal translations. They may, might be preferred more in studying. Uh, the less literal translations might be desired for maybe devotional, casual reading. And so it's, it's what, what you prefer and how it speaks to your heart and how you can get more out of God's Word that way. So that's about it for translations. Uh, it pretty much wraps up that discussion but, and how we got the Bible and all that. But I believe that as you go through that, hopefully it'll be a little helpful for you to understand, why do I have uh, the King James before me? Why do I have the NIV? Why do I always gravitate towards this? And, and, and sometimes it's what you've been brought up in, too. I've always heard King James, and it, it's good for me, and I like it. And that's fine. I always heard, heard, heard the NIV, and I like it, and it's good for me, and it's great. 
But don't just limit yourself to one translation. I guess what I would like to uh, let you know is that open it up and involve more translations than that to get a different perspective uh, of what God is saying in His Word. So now let's talk about the why. And uh, again, the why is not just the letter Y, but uh, maybe you figured it out. Why? Why are we trying to understand the Bible? Why are we doing this? I got about four minutes until 12, and I'm going to try to get through this as, as quick as I can, but uh, hopefully you'll give me a little time. Megan, uh, Zach, is that all right? Can I? Okay, thanks. All right. Just wondering about that. Um, so remember that the main storyline of the Bible, again, is the coming of Christ. That's what we're looking at. And what is the why behind the storyline? Why did he come? Why did Jesus have to come? He came, again, let me remind you, to set us free, free from sin. He came to shed his blood. Jesus came to forgive our sins, and he came to remove the barrier that separated us from God. He also came to unleash the gospel of God's love and his mercy and his grace. Jesus came to do all those things for us, and the Bible communicates that to us. The why behind the story is what motivated men to copy those thousands of manuscripts so carefully and accurately by hand throughout the centuries. The why behind the story is what caused men like William Tyndale to translate the Bible into the common language, even though he knew it would more likely result in his death. The why behind the story is what I want to look at in the time that we have remaining here. The story of forgiveness and freedom and, and, and salvation and mercy and grace is only found in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 explains a lot about this. Uh, Paul does a great job of describing the why behind the story here. And he starts off with a pretty rough and disturbing before Jesus picture. You can turn there with me or you can follow it along on the screen behind me. Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And we were by nature children under God's wrath, like the rest of mankind. Before Jesus, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Before Jesus, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were not sick. We were not ailing. We were not having a bad hair day. We were dead. According to God's word in Romans 6, verse 3, it says, the wages of sin is death. Before Jesus, we were also children under God's wrath. This is not a good thing. <laughs> As children under God's wrath, we were facing a Christless eternity in a place we don't like to think or talk about, because, uh, and all because of our sin. It's a place of eternal and forever torment, utter darkness, gnashing of teeth, unending pain. Before Jesus is not a very pretty picture. Those were probably some very unpleasant verses for the scribes to copy as well. But thankfully, the story does not end there. We continue on with verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. We go on from verse 4 all the way down to verse 10. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, 
made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So this after Jesus picture is so much better. We are alive with Christ. We are alive with Christ. We are covered by his, his grace. We are also no longer an object of God's wrath, but rather we are his masterpiece. This is the, this is the why behind the story. This is it. Salvation, forgiveness, freedom, the unleashing of God's grace. And here's the bottom line of all this. For those who receive the gift of salvation, things only get better from here on. You can anticipate heaven, a place where we'll finally be, where there is no more pain, no more sorrow. None of that's going to be going on. We'll be reunited with loved ones who have gone on before us. We'll be seeing God face to face. What an incredible, incredible moment. But for those who don't, this life is as good as it gets. This is it. This brings us to the question of the ages. How do we get in on the why behind the story? How, how do we get in on the forgiveness and the grace and salvation? How do we get in on the, the deal that God made with himself on the cross? How do we make sure our life is that after Jesus picture? Where do we, get to, where do we go to find all those answers? There's only one place to get the answer. We've been talking about it. It's not from, a, uh, from your pastor. It's not from a denomination. It's not from a family member or friend. It's from the Word of God. It's where we get the answers to this. So what does God's Word say in his, all about this, about His salvation? Well, first of all, the Bible teaches that we are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. Salvation and eternal life in Jesus is a gift that cannot be earned it's not deserved. We don't deserve the thing. And it's not something you achieve or strive for. It is by God's unmerited, that unearned, that undeserved favor. As Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Secondly, the Bible teaches that this gift, grace, can only be received through faith. And not just any faith, saving faith. Ephesians 2.8 tells us about that. And throughout the pages of the New Testament, we find the details of the faith that saves. What is this saving faith? In John chapter 3, verse 16, we already talked about it. Saving faith believes. Saving faith believes. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Saving faith believes. Saving faith believes that what God's Word says about His love and His plan and His mercy and His grace and His person. Saving faith believes our sin and its consequences. Saving faith also, too, also says, uh, believes what God's Word says about Jesus, who He is, what He did, paying our, our debt for sin. 
So saving faith believes, which is extremely good, extremely important, but believing the right stuff is very essential in this. Believing is only the starting point here. As James chapter 2 tells us, you say you have faith, for you, for you believe that there is one God, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in, 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 in terror. So if you just believe that there's a God, well, that's not enough. Not enough. It's putting your faith in Jesus for what he's done. Saving faith also repents. Saving faith also repents. Acts chapter 3, verse 19 tells us, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So what is this repentance? Repentance means so much more than just simply being sorry for your sins. You know, so a lot of times when we were children, we were sorry for getting caught by our parents for what we did wrong. But what did we do the next couple days later? Right back into it again, probably. We were sorry we got caught. We weren't sorry for what we did. Remember, repentance is making a U-turn from the life you are living to the life God offers you. Repentance is laying down your agenda for life and embracing God's agenda for your life. Repentance is saying, God, I've been wrong about so much, and you are right about everything. I want to live for you. I want to take off my, my old ways, those thoughts, those attitudes, those actions, the agendas, and put on your new and better ways of living. Saving faith in that it uh, it, repentance and all that, it's also a commitment, a desire to no longer live for ourselves, instead live for God. And repentance is not simply being sorry. Repentance is all about change. So saving faith also, too, confesses. Saving faith confesses. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, it says, Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. So saving faith unashamedly, at all times, in all places, no matter who we're with, no matter what it costs, says or confesses that Jesus is Lord and Savior, that He is the way, that He's the truth, that He's a life. No matter who you're with, no matter where you're at, it's pretty, pretty easy to do inside these walls right here. But I'm sure you can probably think of places where it might not be so easy. And in those places, we ask God to give us the strength and help to be able to do that. Confess Him. In the context of Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, is when Jesus is telling the disciples that they will be beaten, they will be arrested, and all those things, all because they love and follow Jesus. So confessing is, is going and staying public with our faith, no matter what. So we're out there letting people know. And finally, saving faith follows. Saving faith follows. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, it says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. The following Jesus is, is, is what we've talked about here in our church. We want to be followers of Jesus, those who are committed to that. What does that mean? Well, Luke 9, verse 23, gives us a pretty good view, view, viewpoint of that. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily, and following Him. It involves probably not so much fun at times. There might be some pain along the way. 
But there's going to be joy through it all because the joy, it doesn't come from our circumstances. It comes from that relationship we have with Jesus. And so through it all and following, following Jesus, you also too need to, make, need to realize that it's a lifetime uh, uh, project as you follow Him and you grow in Him. Is following Jesus is sacrificial living that surrenders your life to Him. Following Jesus is that sacrificial living that surrenders your life to Him. Whatever you want to do, whatever you plan to do, whatever your desires are, your wishes and dreams, those are given over to Jesus, to God, and you trust Him with those things. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and prove what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, saving faith believes, saving faith repents, saving faith confesses, and saving faith follows. That's the way, that's, that's the, the why behind the story. That's how you get there. And that's it. It's all from God's Word. This word that God has protected and preserved, this word that people have copied throughout the centuries, this word that is the authority for, our, for all things, including how you and I get in on the why behind the story. God's salvation. This word that is reliable, trustworthy, and true and from God, this word that is powerful and able to change a life. I trust that as you've read God's Word, your life has changed as well. It's a video I want you to watch about how God's Word changed a certain person's life. If you've heard of Ron Archer before, you've probably seen this video. If you haven't heard, this, uh, haven't heard of him before at all, you're going to be blown away. God's Word is very, very powerful. And that is the why behind the story. That is God's Word in action in a person's life. And so in these Sundays that we come together and we do these things, we learn more about and understand more about the Bible, get beyond the head knowledge and get it to your heart. Because God's Word will change your life. Is God getting your attention today at all? <laughs> Are you thinking of some of the Bible verses that you've read before? Maybe there's something He needs to meet with you about. I trust that as you are here today and you sense God's prompting in your life, that you will respond in obedience for what He has for you. And if you need to spend some time in prayer, as I close in prayer, uh, you can come to the altar and pray. But be assured, God's Word changes lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for what You've done for us through Your Word. And Lord, thank You for how living and active Your Word is. I pray, Jesus, that you would continue to remind us that as we read your word, that you are going after our heart, speaking to us about the needs that we have in our life. And I pray, Lord, that if there's someone here today that needs to respond to your promptings, Lord, I pray that you would continue to help them realize those things, speaking to their hearts, and Lord, that they would respond in obedience that they would take time right now to pray. Maybe it's to receive you as Savior. Maybe it's to receive you as Lord, giving their life over to you. Whatever it might be, 
I pray, Lord, that they would spend that time right now talking with you. Because, Lord, it's just a prayer away. And it doesn't have to be some kind of eloquent prayer either. So I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of that. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to remind us as well, too, that you love us. You sent uh, this Bible here for us, and your, your inspired word. And God, I pray that, that we would read it, that we would live it out, that we would be changed by it as well. And uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for how you sacrificed yourself on, the, on that cross for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would not just figure out how, understanding the Bible, but that we'd figure out also to the why behind the Bible, salvation that you offer for us. Thank you, Lord, for those like Ron Archer, who was changed by your word. And I pray, Lord, that again, you would change us through your word as well. In order to do that, we got to read it. So I pray, Lord, that we would do that each day. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us. And I pray, Lord, that as we go from here, that you would remind us that uh, you send us out as missionaries, ready to let others know about you and your love. And I pray, Lord, that we'd be ready to confess you to other people as well. Thank you, Jesus, for this time together. We love you very much. In your name we pray. Amen.